0: Hello, and welcome into Eminent Americans, the podcast about the people, places, paradigms, and platforms that constitute the contemporary American intellectual scene.
1: Thank you. That was great. Thank you. No, <laughs> <laughs> don't repeat after me. So my guest on the podcast today is Timothy Lenzmeyer, Professor at, of Education at the University of Minnesota, and the author of, among other works, White Folks, Race and Identity in Rural America, Powerful Writing, Responsible Teaching, and Whiteness at the Table, Anti-Racism, Racism and Identity in Education. He is also one of the co-founders of the Midwest Critical Whiteness Collective, which is which will prove relevant to this episode. So Tim, welcome to the show. Great to see you again.
0: Thank you. And do you want me to call you Daniel or Dan during Dan this? is fine. All right. Thank you. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure to talk to you.
1: Yeah. So I will get back to you in a moment, Tim, but I want to give a little bit of backstory of kind of how we ended up here in a sense. So I first encountered Tim's work, I think it was about a decade ago. I was working within a kind of diversity group at the university where I work and enjoying it on the one hand, but on the other hand, kind of wrestling with some of what I felt like were some contradictions or tensions in some of the work. And in particular, I was I had I had encountered really at least in a meaningful way for the first time this essay that we're going to talk about today, Peggy McIntosh's landmark essay "White Privilege: Unpacking the Invisible Knapsack." And Tim can tell me in a second if she literally gave us the phrase "white privilege" or not. But whether or not she gave us the phrase, this essay that she wrote was sort of the meaningful document. That kind of initially defined what that was. And so, if you're working in a diversity group, or at least 10 years ago, if you were working in a diversity group, you were going to encounter it was usually just kind of shorthand, the invisible knapsack essay, multiple times, kind of from multiple angles. And I had sort of two conflicting reactions to it. One is it's a really powerful essay in a lot of ways, and it frames this concept of white privilege and our sort of invisible knapsack of privileges that as white people we walk around with in a really interesting, I think, illuminating way. So on the one hand, that was a kind of positive, you know, mind blown sort of interaction with it. Um, on the other hand, I had a pretty negative interaction to it and in various ways. Um, but I think the, the the foremost of which was it felt like as a mechanism of trying to convey ideas, to people out in the world who weren't necessarily well predisposed to these ideas. I had real skepticism that it was a good one. But I was having a hard time articulating that to myself. And so what I did is what I often do, which is go and look and see if there's somebody who's done a better job or has has done the work of sort of thinking these things through and trying to articulate the critique. And I started just doing the things you do. Look on Google Scholar, Google Things, look in the indexes of different books. was having a hard time finding things. A lot of what I was finding were critiques from the right of this concept of invisible, of white privilege and the invisible knapsack. And almost to one, I would say like a few of them were sort of thoughtful in a very narrow way, but by and large, they weren't really thoughtful. They were sort of denigrating. And even when they were thoughtful in a kind of narrow way, it was from certain premises that I think were fundamentally conservative premises. It was, it, it, there was no sort of granting of some of the fundamental foundational premises of ideas of whiteness and white supremacy and things like that. So that was not what I was looking for. So finally, I landed on this essay, the title of which is "Macintosh as Synecdoche. I think I pronounced that word right. How teacher education's focus on white privilege undermines anti-racism. This was authored by the Midwest Critical Whiteness Collective, of which Tim is a founding member. And and it was really one of those miraculous things. It's one of those miraculous things that happens because there's a lot of smart people out in the world thinking about the same things. It addressed these sort of inchoate feelings that I'd had about this, but then went beyond that or along with that and approached it in ways that I hadn't thought of, but resonated. It got to some of these basic f- sort of psychological questions of what whiteness is in a way that I think the essay didn't. And I think in a sense, the mainstream of people who are interested from a critical perspective in white- whiteness don't. And it did various other things. I was really excited about it. I reached out to Tim. I ended up writing a piece for The Point magazine, not about that essay primarily, but Tim happened to be working on this book that I mentioned before, White Folks, which was based on some research he did out in the field in a small town in Wisconsin, which he calls, I think, Boonendam. That's not really the name of it. But he went back and basically talked to a bunch of white people about what, they, what life was like as a white person. We'll get into all of it. But I wrote this piece. And, and then Tim and I have just loosely stayed in touch since then. And then I just think more broadly talking about what whiteness is, how the Midwest Critical Whiteness Collective came to be, what some of the tensions in this discourse are, and I think Tim and I are also coming from somewhat different perspectives. I think I'm I'm more of a sort of skeptic of or critic of some of the kind of basic notions these days of whiteness studies than I think, Tim, I think, I mean, in a kind of shorthand way, I think Tim is somewhat to the left of me on some of these things, but I think he and I have overlapping intuitions or constructive tensions between us. So all of that said, and probably I'll cut that down. Tim, maybe let's start with not all the way back, though we actually probably are going to get all the way back because you write some about your childhood. Um, (laughs) This more recent piece you sent me, which I think is the introductory essay to this collection, Whiteness at the Table, you talk about the founding of the Midwest Critical Whiteness Collective. Can you kind of tell me that that origin story? And maybe we'll at a later date we'll go back, later point we'll go back to your deep origin story.
0: Yes. So the way that I tell it in the introduction to whiteness at the table, you know, we should just note that any story could start in a different place. But the way I started there is just that my wife Audrey, who's also a whiteness scholar, We were talking together and I was telling her about some great young scholars that had joined my department as PhD students. And in my telling her about how wonderful it was to have these people around who were really serious, who'd been activists and teachers and teacher educators in different ways, really trying to work this out, it put her back to her own PhD work. And she just kind of noted that she didn't have a group like that when she was trying to figure out things, the group was more the people she read, right? The things that helped her learn. And by the end of that conversation, she just said, we should start a group. And we did. And we called it the Midwest, I guess eventually we called it the Midwest Critical Whiteness Collective. And I think a couple of ways I would characterize it is that we were all very busy people. And we realized often when these collectives were created, they then became one more set of tasks that you had to do. And so one of the early decisions was that we were going to be a collective meant to try to support and figure out how to help white people who were already doing anti-racist work. And then we weren't going to try to add to that. We were Mm -hmm. going to try to create a group where literally the commitment was getting together once a month to talk together. And I think that was a good move. We didn't put pressure on ourselves to do more other stuff. We just said, let's get together. There's plenty for us to figure out together. And the other way that I would characterize the group is that storytelling became very important to it. And then the commitment to trying to figure out complex, multiple, maybe even contradictory readings of those stories with each other to try to figure it out. Because one of the things we were really worried about is a lot of work in education on race and racism and whiteness we thought really tended to simplify out the kind of most complex and difficult things that happen when we're trying to work on racism or when we're trying to think about it. So when you said you weren't
1: going to put pressure on yourselves to do things, by that you mean write papers, do studies, recruit more people. Is that what you mean? Like you were just going to have to figure out how to make this so that it's adding energy and sort of vitality into our life and not sapping it, basically. So let's take all of those expectations off the table.
0: I would say there's two things. One is where you ended up. Like I've been chair of, for example, the College Diversity Committee in my College of Education. And such committees face the same problem, right? That are we going to be a body that somehow like does stuff that sets up like projects and then sees them out, right? Even though we're not really well positioned as a committee to do that, right? But that feels like those are usually made up of people that want to take action, right? Right. Or, and if we don't do that, then what's our usefulness? And we just tried to say we're, we're comfortable enough that we're doing a lot of this work, that we're not trying to make more anti-racist work for ourselves. That's first insight. The second insight is the problem of white people joining cross-racial anti-racist groups, that often those groups get bogged down because white people need certain sorts of, certain sorts of help to continue doing this work, right? And certain sorts of support Mm -hmm. that actually gets in the way of the work. So we were also trying to say, maybe in this group, we can support each other in doing that work so that when we show up in other spaces, we're more ready to engage in anti-racist work. And that meant that maybe, um, like we all have, right? As as humans, we all have stories that don't make sense to us, right? And when you're working in anti-racist groups, Sometimes it's it's not good to demand, you know, like I want to tell this story. I want help figuring this out. It makes me feel bad and confused or it makes me feel just like weird, like I don't understand what's happening. And so we want it to be that kind of space for each other.
1: I would also imagine there's the flip side of that, though I understand why you framed it that way. The flip side of that, which is I would imagine white people in multiracial anti-racism groups It is awkward and probably in some cases not really feasible to talk through complicated feelings, racist feelings, yucky feelings, ideas or experiences that might be perceived of as racist from other – like all of the things that somebody who wants to process stuff that's just complicated and not always pretty – deal with. So on the one hand, you're saying, okay, yes, we don't want to demand of other people that they sort of shepherd us through all of this. But on the other hand, I would just think in a sort of pragmatic sense, it's just not going to prove a particularly fruitful space in which to just deal with all that messy stuff and have the space and time to kind of blah the stuff out that you might be ashamed or embarrassed to admit in front of somebody.
0: Yeah. And I think that is one of the promise of a group like that. I would just have to say, I'll just note that- even though it's unfair for all of us, I would say it was people of color that actually were willing to work on more Uh complicated stories. Um, and that white people, especially white people that thought they were whatever you want to call it, woke or already arrived. The good white people, right? Yeah. They were the ones, they were the ones that actually shut down the exploration of more complex ways of looking at things. And that isn't only like when we might be coming up to expressing something that feels racist or it's almost that any kind of complexity was a problem, right? Because it somehow, I guess it somehow suggested we didn't know, right? What was right or wrong exactly. It also suggested that maybe we were doing something indulgent, right? By trying, by taking the time to figure something out rather than charging ahead. And I would just say there's a in education and maybe anti-racist work more broadly, there's this weird way in which there's both just like no action, like for long periods of time, but also there's like really stupid fast action over and over again. And neither one of those lead to anything helpful, right?
1: It's interesting. So you brought up that you were often you found it was white people shutting down other white yeah. people who are yeah. trying to process things. And brought to the Macintosh essay critiques that I hadn't really thought through or sort of even had particular intuitions about. And one of the ones you talk about a lot, in particular in your book, is this kind of intro white, I was going to say competition, but this, that a lot of what happens in racial dynamics in America, maybe in other countries as well, is between white people and almost about white people vis-a-vis each other with black people or issues of other races as kind of weird proxies for competitions for virtue or status or or just protection or something like that amongst white people. So that that kind of resonates with what that we'll get into more in depth. I did want to ask, you said when you were pulling together the collective, I forget exactly how you framed it, but you said something along the lines of you also had this intuition that in whiteness studies, there were certain things that weren't being dealt with, the complexity that you would like to see them dealt with. And I imagine that's one of them, but I don't want to put words in your mouth. What did you mean by that? So you started the collective, with some kind of intuition that there was something happening in this broader field that you didn't feel was quite right. So what was that?
0: Well, I think it's pretty much located in what we saw happening with Macintosh's essay, both in it and how it was like mobilized in actual situations. And I would say it was at that point mainly an intuition that there was something like going on that at best wasn't helpful. And at worst, might actually be literally undermining anti-racism and promoting kind of bad things. I think we collected as groups of people who had been trying to think and work on this stuff already. And we were dissatisfied with the main way that we saw white people being addressed with attempts to help them understand themselves and attempts to mobilize them for anti-racist teaching and anti-racist work. So I would say we, we were joined around, and McIntosh's work was an important part of what we were joined around. And so that's why I say in telling the story that fairly quickly, we thought we need to go back and look carefully at this essay because... We had an intuition that something wrong was going on or something wasn't as good as it could have been, but we didn't quite know what it was. So we thought we'd go back and read it carefully together with each other.
1: So I'm going to put you on the spot and make you describe Macintosh's essay in a second, Um, but you're a teacher, so you can probably do that pretty easily. But I did want to note Before that, another thing about the collective that I think is worth noting, and this may be true in general, just whoever is at schools or colleges of education, but some of the folks in your collective, I mean, You guys were teaching also at all levels, and I don't know how this evolved. It may have been people in grad school and then they went out into the world, but you're obviously teaching at the undergraduate and graduate level and your wife as well. But some of these folks are actually going out and training, or they have in the past training as high school teachers or elementary school teachers or principals or something like this. So You are operating in this sort of theoretical space. But it is not disconnected at all. And this comes up in your paper because you talk about people's experiences of being out in the world as teachers and training teachers and things like that. You're not disconnected at all from classroom teaching students, teaching undergraduates, what the actual personal experience of teaching this essay and just being out in the world teaching is in general. I think that's important to your whole endeavor. So teach me in brief, what is the great essay? White privilege colon unpacking the invisible knapsack. And if you know, tell me a little bit about who Peggy McIntosh is. I know a little bit about her, but maybe she's just the person who wrote this essay.
0: Yeah, I don't know too much. And I didn't look into I didn't look into that too much. She's worked as best I can tell primarily in university settings. She explicitly locates this work in women's studies first. Right. And so that's one thing she also set up. She created and this is partly to her credit. She created this organization called SEED, Seeking Educational Equity and Diversity. And that's a group that's been engaged with teachers and their professional development for a long time. So I would say we could say that she's been involved with this. And it's not just, you know, an involvement that has her writing something, but that she's been trying to influence things. The first thing I'll note, and I'm not ready to do this because I'm a teacher. I'm ready to do this because you said we were going to talk about this.
1: (laughs) So you went back and read the essay? Yeah. (laughs)
0: Yes. The first thing I'll say is that the title you read is actually an excerpted shortened piece already. And that's actually one of the problems for us. And McIntosh has some of the responsibility of this. She oversaw all these various versions of it that were shortened, right? So I'm going to first describe quickly a piece called White Privilege and Male Privilege, a personal account of coming to see correspondences Through Work in Women's Studies. That was published in 1988. And it was the piece that kind of launched all this. And it is the one that's then excerpted and shortened. Ah. And some of the ways that it's shortened, I think, undermine the powerfulness of the essay, because it tends to have some then commentary, these shortened versions, and then the list is really predominant. So, the longer essay that she first wrote and came out in 1988 as from the Wesley Center for Research on Women. Um, what she does in the introduction is say that she's been trying to work on bringing women's studies materials to curriculum, and she's noticed men resisting that. And she's noticing that. They're willing to say that women have not been represented well and have been disadvantaged, but they're not willing to say that they are overprivileged or that, you know, that. And then she notes that her own understanding of race and racism is very similar, that she learned about racism as something that happens to and disadvantages people of color, but that she doesn't learn or didn't learn anything about how she was advantaged in the situation. So this longer essay has discussions of how denial works, the denial of male privilege works. Then she draws parallels to her own history of denying white privilege for herself. Then it has this, these 46 Which she says, quote, ordinary and daily ways in which I experience having white privilege within my life situation and its particular social and political frameworks. Um, So that's this long list that and that list is usually what's emphasized, right, in the work. Mm -hmm. Um, Then in this longer essay, she has some commentary on how white privilege is related to things like meritocracy, about related to white people thinking about themselves as moral in the United States as well as saying that maybe we need to create a more nuanced reading of the privileges because some of them seem to be things that we want for everybody in a good society. And some of them really do seem to be, um, she calls them other privileges that give license to be ignorant, arrogant, and destructive, right? But she never makes any of those. She doesn't do that. Yeah, she doesn't do that. And that, I think that undermines sometimes the work that's done with it. So like you said, there's something powerful about this, right? But it's a little weird. At the end of this piece, she has a list of eight more advantages that she calls heterosexual advantage and dominance. So it just it's a strange essay, right? And we have encountered this before, you know, like the most powerful things aren't necessarily the things that are tidy. So I would say this isn't a tidy essay even though she will talk about the importance of coming to understand societal and systemic and institutional racism, she'll say these things and that privilege works that way. The overall impression is that as white people, we possess white privilege, like it's a quality of us or it's something we have, right? And that it seems for me and for, especially when we started reading this piece together as a collective, it seemed it was saying that somehow lessening our privilege automatically lessens the oppression of people of color. And that's kind of a confusing kind of weird idea that I don't think it necessarily works. So that's a quick characterization of that longer essay.
1: Yeah, I just want to read two things. I'm realizing now this is from the excerpted version, but it's probably text that is in the original. So I want to read because there's this famous metaphor, Invisible Knapsack. She writes, I've come to see white privilege as an invisible package of unearned assets which I can count on cashing in each day, but about which I was, quote, meant to remain oblivious. White privilege is like an invisible weightless knapsack of special provisions, maps, passports, code books, visas, clothes, tools, and blank checks. And I just want to read some of these randomly just to give people who haven't read the essay a sense of what we're talking about. I can, if I wish, arrange to be in the company of people of my race most of the time. I can go shopping alone most of the time, pretty well assured that I will not be followed or harassed. When I am told about our national heritage or about civilization, I'm shown that people of my color made it what it is. If a traffic cop pulls me over or if the IRS audits my tax return, I can be sure I haven't been singled out because of my race. I can take a job with an affirmative action employer without having co-workers on the job suspect that I got it because of race. So to your point, part of what's weird about the essay is it's like all of these totally different types of things. There's things about ignorance that maybe are like bad, actively bad things that you would want to remove. But then some of them are like just like, well, we would want everybody to be able to go into a job and not have it assumed of them that they got the job because they're white or black or Asian. Like some of these things that are just basic rights that we want to, that's actually seem like they kind of fit into that frame she was reacting against, where it's just people want to work for the betterment of the other races, but they don't want to dwell with what advantage they may have accruing to them. Yeah, it is a weird essay. The other thing I wanted to read, and this was really interesting, and I'd forgotten about this till I reread your essay, is you refer to Bakhtin's concept of an authoritative discourse. And I'm just going to read what you guys wrote. Bakhtin explains that authoritative discourse could be religious, political, moral. He observes that authoritative discourse was not supposed to be played with or broken into smaller pieces, and argues that authoritative discourse permits no play with the context framing it, no play with its borders. It enters our verbal consciousness as a compact and indivisible mass. One must either totally affirm it or totally reject it. One cannot divide it up, agree with one part, accept but not completely another Apart, reject utterly a third part. That feels so true, and it's sort of like... I, I, if true in different ways. Like one is this sort of the degree, and you'll have to tell me about whether you got pushback on this, but potentially the degree to which if you critique something, maybe you get pushback. But then I would say another way in which you can wage these critiques and they can have this sort of individual purchase, but in some sense seem to slide totally off the carapace of the whole thing and not be integratable into the larger thing. Like I can imagine there've been a lot of critiques waged of probably of the invisible knapsack at this point. And yet all that keeps happening is it just keeps being assigned over and over again in fundamentally the same way without any sort of integration of any of those critiques and all of those things. But that's that was just, that was really fast because I can think of other texts like, it's just a powerful concept that it's not a normal text. And I almost wonder whether it's weirdness and I don't have a theory of this, but it's weirdness is somehow essential to that. There's some sort of aura that's generated around it that makes it different from a normal text.
0: Yes, I think that's part of the mystery of the text. So I don't know how to talk about how something becomes authoritative. You know, like there's lots of ways that something can, right? But one of the ways to approach this is to say, is there something about the text, as well as how the text is used, that makes criticism of it either a really risky thing or that you could be punished for criticizing it, right? So one of the things I noticed early on, and this was just because of how it felt parallel to my reading of Freud. When I was trying to make sense of Freud and read Freud, I always felt like if I just granted two little things, then he had me this in this trap, you know, like and, <laughs> yeah. and that and then any criticism of it, you know, just meant that I hadn't worked out something with my mother or my father <laughs> or something, right? And so right. I've had this feeling with Macintosh that any the way that she starts the essay, at least this longer one, so strongly with that we're taught to deny these things, right? Right. Any denial then, right, is just, is just a, an example. Evidence of the truth of it, right? But yeah. It's
1: yeah. precisely like resistance in Freud, right? It's a,
0: exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So I think there is something built into the text that produces this danger then of asking questions of it. The second story that Mary Lee Nichols told in the um, Harvard Educational Review piece, McIntosh as synecdoche, that second story is about that. A student who, for various reasons, being quite poor, growing up in rural areas, he was pushing back hard on McIntosh.
1: Just so I get the context right, this was, she was teaching a college class, is that right? She was teaching on Yeah,
0: and like a, a a teacher education class, right? And So future, she was teaching future Future teachers. teachers, right. And... We noted there that most of the time, if somebody dares to criticize McIntosh, right, then they're labeled as a racist person who's not willing to acknowledge their privilege. And so the importance of Mary's story there is that she, she responded differently. She responded by trying to get close to him and trying to see what was important to him. And she realized he responded very differently when he read like historical work, about how immigrants were treated or historical work on how indigenous peoples in Wisconsin had been treated, that he didn't look like he didn't look regressive or he didn't look whatever Mm -hmm. conservative. He looked like he actually was concerned and wanted to do things. And so one of the worries that we had was whether it's produced by the text or by the way that people teach it or both, right? It seemed like you couldn't criticize the text. And if you can't criticize the text, that means that you can't eventually decide that you like the text, right? If you can't criticize it, you can't work through anything, right? And so we were very worried. We were very worried about how that seemed to work. And we note that when we, I think I did this in the introduction to the whiteness at the table, we noticed that when we started talking about this, right, other people were nervous too, and they would talk to us after the official session and say, I was worried about that too. And,
1: so you're talking about this is not internally within the collective. This is when you're like presenting on your yeah. findings at something at a conference or something. Yeah. Like that.
0: yeah. Yeah. That it seemed like other people were nervous about making public statements that, yeah, there might be, you know, even just something like limits, which I would say any perspective has limits. Right. People were nervous about doing that. And then in these like, private or marginal conversations, they were willing to say, yeah, I felt like I've had to develop materials to get over this problem with using this text, right? We started saying, why do we have to use it? Like Because it, even those people would <laughs> often say, you have to start with MacDash, right? Even if it causes yeah. all this trouble, you have to start there. And we just started saying, why? Why do we have to start there?
1: And I guess that's interesting. I guess that also would depend on the context, right? You can imagine a course on sort of theory where if you don't teach the thing that's central to the discourse, it would be weird, right? If you were teaching future scholars about the field of whiteness studies and you didn't teach certain seminal essays as texts, that would be a strange thing. But that's a different context from like one essay in a larger course on pedagogy or something like that.
0: But I would also say, even in the course on whiteness studies, that doesn't mean that has to be the first No, text. that's true. <laughs> that's true. Well, right. I guess if you, actually,
1: right, if you actually wanted to change the canon, stop teaching it, right? I want to get into the guts of your essay. So you talked about, it's sort of structured around these two personal narratives from two members of your collective. So one of them is Mary, and you talk about Mary's narrative is, I don't know if she's getting her graduate degree at that point, but she's teaching undergraduates And she's teaching them Macintosh's essay. It's so sort of open and personal and feels real, right? She talks in this very revealing way about she saw herself as this great sort of superhero of kind of racial liberationism or something like that. She's going to bring the gospel of sort of white privilege and whiteness studies and all of these things to her students and they will be enlightened and then they will go out into the world and teach more people and enlightenment will spread, right? And I mean, obviously she was having fun at her own expense a little, but she's capturing a real essence. And so she was doing that and I think was saying she had had the experience in previous classes of having white students, probably usually white men, push back and resist. And in her head, she did that little thing, like yeah. more evidence of their racism. They don't want to hear the truth. Right. And then she encounters this guy, John, who defies her expectations in certain ways. Right. Yeah. Just kind of talk me through a little bit, you know, what happens with John.
0: Mary, across the ways that we see her acting as a teacher, right, we see that she's actually committed to this work, which includes that she wants her students to learn. Right. And she realizes that she's used to students. There's students who immediately agree with Macintosh. Right. And like maybe weep a little bit confess that they were ignorant that they were racist and that they want to do better and then John and other students were responding differently and that became a problem then for her to figure out pedagogically she realized that it wasn't the criticalness of macintosh because they were reading other critical work critical of the united states critical of educational systems and he wasn't responding the same way to Macintosh. And so she realized that why was she making him go through Macintosh, right? In some sense, why would she deny him like the chance to learn just because he didn't like what Macintosh was up to? And so in the interpretation that our collective did of that story, we noticed certain things. So we noticed that it seemed like Macintosh was acting like a sort of filter, right? That filtered out bad white people and good white people. And then usually bad white people then can be ignored, right? Pushed away. We noticed that not only is it not desirable for us to lose the people who are resistant, but we started realizing that there was real dangers in the people that agreed with Macintosh. Even the students that she said like accepted and embraced Macintosh right away. Maybe there's something not good about that. Response to. And that's that's the deeper one about is this just providing a sort of catharsis or some sort of emotional experience that you come to the end of, and then you feel like you did the work of anti-racism, you know? Yeah. Like and
1: that's, and that's Jesse's story. So it's like, if we go back to your goals as anti-racist educators or anti-racist, the mm-hmm. goals in some sense are we would like r- less racism in our society. We would like our structures to be less racist. You have an end goal in mind. There's these two constituencies, right? And I don't think people always identify both of them. One is like, John, the student who is resistant to this particular approach, but might be available if approached in another way to be engaged in anti-racist activity or even just not an opponent of anti-racist activity, right? Not engaged in backlash or resentment. So that's on the one hand, it's like maybe a potential pool of converts. And I think that's a sort of often analyzed group. But then on the other hand, there are the people, as you say, who agree with you, who are sort of like immediately on board with the project. And this is, I think, the other story that sort of the essay is formed around, which is Jesse's narrative. And can you sort of tell that story briefly?
0: Jesse's story is important to the piece because she was actually in SEED. She was actually in a professional development course, you know, that has its origins in what um, Peggy McIntosh was setting up. And Jesse just tells this Very complex story, which I think most stories about race are. She just tells this very complex story about noticing things in herself. And one of the parts of it is she's waiting to get onto like one of the highways, and there's a black guy on the side of the road, and she's confronted with, is she going to help him? And she notices these things in herself. So the importance of her story isn't so much like her experience. The story is what her experience is then in telling the story within the structures of these seed sessions. I guess one of the interpretations is that a white privilege framework doesn't give us any way of sorting out and reading in a complex way a story like Jesse's, right? It's just It's inadequate. It's inadequate as a way to help people make sense of their experience. And I guess we're assuming that making sense of your experience is an important part of learning things and potentially responding differently or creating new desires to pursue different sorts of things. And so there's a real inadequacy to both the ideas of white privilege and then also the ways that white privilege is taken up. And in this case, we talked about this thing called serial testimony, which Mm -hmm. is a something that Jesse said was an important part of of this way of working at race and racism. And we can see the reasons that such a procedure was put in place, right? So the idea is basically that everybody gets a chance to share and nobody comments on it, right? So there's there's an attempt to try to get everybody to have a chance to speak, which is good. And there's an attempt to... um, Knock out the possibility of people being taught to be afraid to share, right? Because right. people criticize, right? And so we can see why this might be put in place or might be put in place at certain times. But we just notice that it contributes to this way in which white privilege ideas are protected as not being worthy of conversation or criticism. That that somehow you're not supposed to question any aspect of this, and right. there's something really there's something really dangerous about that. I tend to wh- whether you talk about it as a story or a theory or discourse. I think that they're all necessarily limited, right? Their power is bound up in their saying, "Pay attention to this and not that," and yeah. that means that we can have powerful theories that we still have to be able to question.
1: Well, and you also point out in this, I mean, I'll read this. This was a key sentence for me. Yeah. You know, we argue, we being the Midwest Critical Whiteness Collective, that this ritual of serial testimony, of confessing your own sins of white privilege or racist feelings or whatever it is, that this ritual teaches participants that the crucial action they need to take as white people is to confess their privilege rather than, for example, take anti-racist action, or perhaps more accurately, their confession ends up being the anti-racist action. And that's an important, to go back to what I was saying about your goal, like that is, if that if true, that is an immensely important Yeah fact or suggestion that this key text in the broader field of whiteness studies that is being handed to people as a sort of roadmap for how to be anti-racist actually is kind of a dead end, right? It kind of dead ends in confession, which doesn't seem to lead to anything.
0: Yep. If you think about the popularity of figures like Robin DiAngelo, it's hard for me not to think of all those people going to listen to her talk and the Tens of thousands of dollars that she's making that the people going to those are expecting that they will be put under some kind of interrogation or they're going to be made to feel bad. Right. Yeah. And they'll endure that. And then. And that's that's the thing.
1: And it feels good in a way. I think you use the term catharsis at one or more points in the it feels bad, but it also feels good. Right. Which is not an unfamiliar notion at all when we're talking about penance and guilt and things like that, yep. that confession and even yep. a sort of public confession and some kind of criticism can actually feel good. It certainly, at a minimum, it certainly feels like you've been through something, right? You've been through something emotionally, maybe physically exhausting, intense. Yep. I wanna kind of pivot from Pet McIntosh to white folks and kind of the some of the broader things. It seems to me one of the sort of implicit or explicit premises of some of the work like Macintosh, and I haven't really read D'Angelo, but maybe D'Angelo as well, is that we will never get anywhere with the anti-racist project unless we deal with the racism inside of us. That in other words, it's a critique of the kind of liberal project, the liberal premise, that you can just look at the problems and analyze them and devise solutions without exploring these kind of deeper structures, whether they're deeper hidden structures of the psyche or deeper hidden structures of the economy or whatever else, right? And so I think in the case of Macintosh, what you're saying is at least in this respect, it doesn't seem to be true. It doesn't seem to be the case that exploring your own personal white privilege actually p- leads beyond itself to anti-racist outcomes in the world. I would say pivoting to your book, White Folks, where you really get into your theory of what is going on with whiteness and white people psychologically vis-a-vis race, in the history of racism in this country. And so I would say you have a kind of comparable premise, but obviously you think your premise is one that leads to anti-racist outcomes, which is there's all sorts of complex, hidden, unconscious stuff going on in white people when it comes to race and racism in this country. And it's important to try and unpack that if ultimately we want to take effective anti-racist action in the world. Is that accurate? Or is it more just that as a scholar, you're interested in understanding these things and it's separate from your anti-racist endeavor? Does that make sense as a question?
0: Yeah, it makes sense. So I think the, the first answer to your question would just be that I obviously am trying to create possibilities with the book. Yeah, I'm trying to keep, create potentials. And I'm hoping that those potentials might get us places that like a focus on white privilege doesn't get us. So that's the first thing I would say. So no, I don't think Macintosh would think her text by itself would produce some, you know, like, so, but but I'm hoping that a different sort of starting point creates potentials then for people reading it, for people talking about it with others, for people seeing aspects of themselves and their society. So that's the first thing I would say. I really liked that you talked about deep structures of the psyche and deep structures of our society, because I think I'm trying to say, in not any kind of deterministic way, that the deep structures of our society and economy are the deep deep structures of our psyche, or that they are... The reason that we look at ourselves, right? is not just to understand ourselves, but we can read ourselves as being produced in a society that does certain things to us, right? I'm not trying to say that we're determined in this simple, you know, simple way, I don't know, strong versions of ideology or whatever, but we are, we're not, our ideas don't come from inside of us by ourselves. We're in these complex relationships. We create meanings and values and desires and emotions out of all those interactions. And then then that's the mess that we as white people are living with. And so I hope, or what I was trying to pull off of the book, was to help white people both read themselves and the society we're in, right, in hopefully a more productive way, which would hopefully suggest both maybe internal work that they had to keep figuring out, but also work that is looking at the society and that produces in us these messes, right? So that it's trying to do both of those things. That's one of the reasons that I admire the Reverend Tandeika's book so much, Learning to be White, that she really tries to both put together this historical story that I guess I would locate probably in W.E.B. Du Bois' story of the United States and how it works. She tries to do that and then ask the question, what does that do to white people in a society that's set up like that? I admire that effort, and I guess I'm trying to draw on similar, similar ideas, similar stories of the long story of the United States to try to make sense, of, make sense of how we get to think and feel and act as we do.
1: Yeah, and let me just say, I mean, I'm saying this to you, but also to whomever listening. Tim's book, White Folks, is a great book, and it's also, and I always like to make this point because people are daunted by long books, it's a short book. I think it's a hundred and some pages. It's a great short book and there's personal stuff in there. You talk about your own life, your own experience of growing up in a very white environment, having a kind of unconscious but nonetheless, complex, although you would only unpack that complexity later. And but then you talk about some of these theorists who you admire, like Tandeika, And I think I'm trying to think of who else you bring in. I think you mentioned Leslie Fiedler. And I think you're, you're Ralph,
0: a, Ralph Ellison is a big help.
1: Ralph Ellison. I think you're a Freudian in some sense. And it just it's also one of these great sort of ethnographies where you go to this small place and you have in the grand scheme of things, a relatively small number of conversations, but if you bring the right sensitivity to that and a kind of fruitful theoretical lens, they can reveal everything in a way. It's just this small town in Wisconsin, but it's kind of like some of the stories you got out of people are so fucking fascinating. The book starts right with this story of you winning this oratory contest, is that right?
0: In Wisconsin, they called it forensics, but it's like speech, it's speech contests. Yeah, all, all, all sorts of different categories.
1: Yeah, so tell that story. Because that's revealing, too, in really interesting ways.
0: Yeah. And I have to say, that chapter is called How I Became White While Punching the Tar Baby. And I'll say to the people listening to this that you just kind of laughed at that title. And I'll say that title has gotten me in trouble, like in all sorts of ways and interesting ways because of the D.E. there. But that was to signal that I got this story essentially, or got the idea from the story from the Disney movie Song of the South, right? Which... Um, which retells these um, Tar-Baby, or not Tar-Baby, Br'er Rabbit, 'er Br'er Fox. Br'er
1: Rabbit, Uncle Remus, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I remember watching that when I was a kid.
0: Yeah. So the story is basically that that particular story I tell, I'm a senior in high school, and I do lots of stuff. It's a small, small high school. You know, we were like around 400 people in the high school, and I did lots of stuff. I played sports, and I was heavily involved in music and musicals and these speech contests and I gravitated towards the storytelling category and that year I told several several brer rabbit stories but my favorite one was the the tar baby story but I told it with sort of mannerisms facial expressions bodily posture based on you know the Dis- the racist Disney movie <laughs>
1: Right, all of the racist tropes that make that. It's on
0: the self. so I told that story. I got a first place at the state competition in Madison, and then I at the award ceremony in the spring for for seniors and stuff. I got asked to tell the story, and so in the chapter, I tell the story of telling that story and just how I say that it felt sacred doing it, and it's that comes out of this. I've been performing in different ways from early on mainly like in music and so i've had these experiences singing being on stage giving speeches there's moments there's times at which you forget all the sort of worries about yourself how you're doing like worries about mm-hmm. how you look how you sound all that you just it there's times it happens that it goes away and you really just want to serve your audience. You want to do this well for them. That's all that matters. And this was one of those times. So I tell the story of that and tell the story that the response to it was positive. You know, I I talk about farmers that hold. Yeah, let me hold
1: on. Let me read this because I have this quote in front of me. It felt sacred as I performed for my community. People laughed and clapped and cheered. Afterward, farmers who hauled milk to the small cheese factory run by my dad and my uncle, and earlier by my grandfather, slapped me hard on the back, laughed, seemed almost to cut me with their dry, calloused skin as they smiled and shook my hand. A part of what's so revealing about that is, like, in the whole thing, is surely it's not as simple as that was just a fun thing that you picked, right? That that was a fun story. There's a reason that, like, enculturated in our society... You pick a story like that, and then why does it speak to these Midwestern cheese making and hauling farmers? And this resonated with me and was kind of things I'd thought about for a long time in my own life, which is there's this sort of simplistic vision of sort of white racism, you know, in America that I think persists despite being obviously silly in certain ways, which is like racism consists of just white people thinking less of black people. And it's as simple as that right? That, that that Black people exist in our psyche as just less, when we think of them as less than, right? And so we will exploit them if we can, we will denigrate them if we can, but that's about it, right? That's what racism is. And versus like the complex mix of feelings of desire and rejection and rejection of our own unconscious desire and resentment and envy and all of these Things that are just there un- when I say under the surface, but like sometimes barely under the surface and, and to look at our culture through the lens of just like white people kind of half don't give a shit about black people and half d- just don't like them and think less of them is to really miss a lot of what's going on and to not be able to understand the complexities. And I would say to go back to Macintosh, I think that is implicit in her things, right? There's nothing in there. There's nothing in Macintosh's list of unearned privileges that suggest that whiteness is anything other than just happy if noxious advantage over black people.
0: I think that's right. Some of the discussions are fairly complex, but they just never seem to get developed like by her more like the closest you get to what you're saying is that she does recognize that we could look at some of these privileges as harming white people. but. It's just barely mentioned. And the people that take up this work just don't do that. Again, because I think they're afraid to that to say that, right, then is to once again put white people at the center as the one who have the problems rather than people right. of color. What you just described is why I then have to do three different interpretations of my telling of the Tar Baby story, right? So to answer this question that you started with of why why did people like this story? Why did my community like it? Why was it important to me to tell them? And so I try to answer that. I say that it involved rural settings and rural pleasures, right? And those are things that are often not represented in all sorts of media, especially in the past. When I was growing up, I remember the first time I saw the Coen brothers Fargo and it was the first time I'd seen the interior of a house that looked like my aunt's and uncle's houses, like the farmhouses yeah. that they were in. So there's pleasure in just like this recognizable kind of rural setting for the Tar Baby story. Then I go into that it is a, an other, right, that creation of an other, stereotypical other But again, but telling that story, not like you correctly noted, not that this is we tell we have this other, this denigrated other, just because we want to feel superior to them. But because this is what Rodiger did based on what Du Bois did. This is about white working class people being humiliated by white elites and forming their identity then in relation to black people, which is also a response to their relatively powerless position in society, right? So the other is created and, and denigrated. Rodiger puts it as the white working class created this black other, that so that we could say that's not us, that we're not. But that isn't the same as saying, I know that I'm superior. And in, in fact, it's a deep anxiety that we're not. And then the third reading was actually picking up on this rebelliousness in the story, right? And just trying to try to say that these stories had in them stories of the powerless outdoing and outwitting the powerful. And that, and then I try to do this thing. Some people have not been persuaded of this just because they're not persuaded of the historical research. But I just try to connect that to the earliest sorts of blackface minstrelsy that had been identified where white youth in cities coming from rural areas or from other countries in rural areas seem to identify and black up on these stages, these, you know, kind of foot high stages in the worst kind of Manhattan bars. Then they seem to be blacking up to be in solidarity with the black and the Chinese other performers on stage and also performing for a very mixed race kind of of audience. And so that's part of the attraction thing. Like I, I say that, White people are attracted to how black people move through trouble. And that's not the same as being in solidarity with them. Again, this is just trying to create possibilities. Well, and there's a fourth thing, though. I don't think that's, there's a fourth thing, though. It's not necessarily in that
1: story. But the other thing that came yeah. to mind, which is a desire for an unconscious or maybe sort of quasi-conscious desire for kinship and also for forgiveness for saying you're OK. I'm not sure if that's in your story, but it is certainly in some of the other And I'm thinking of that famous Leslie Fiedler essay. What does it come back to the raft again? Huck Honey, where he's reading Adventures of Huckleberry Finn kind of through that lens of kind of white desire for black, black absolution, but also black communion and love. And I mean, it's complicated stuff. One of the ways that you wrote the book was through these stories of individual people, and I don't think they were composites. You gave them pseudonyms, but they were actual yep. people. Can you talk about Frank, right? Was that the one with the poker game? And the and then also the racist uncle, right, with the weird fantasies of killing Martin Luther King. So yep. can you talk about Frank a little bit and maybe the kind of the poker game versus the, he taught at a high school, right? The, the poker game, the high spaces and the low spaces.
0: So yeah, Frank worked in a high school and maybe more than most of the other people. He really did seem to be trying to work this out in real time in these conversations with me. And so one of the interesting things he did is he started talking about, he called it, I think he literally called it basement culture. It was based on the idea of his thinking through what was happening in this regular poker game that he was in. And obviously it was played in the basement. And so he called it basement culture. And he was contrasting that going back and forth between what it was like to mention, talk about, tell stories about in race there in the basement culture, compared to then the very stilted, <laughs> nervous <laughs> right. conversations that. He had basically, it seemed almost in all other aspects of his life, right, where he was a person in the community that had responsibility for the education of children. I think he felt like he was being watched. He also was commenting on what it was like to try to even talk to f- fellow educators in in the high school, all white people. Right. So, again, I, I always want to say that this is all going on among white people. This isn't, you know.
1: It's just like deep Wisconsin, people, or, deep yeah. Wisconsin white people. Yeah.
0: People. Yeah. And so. I just developed this contrast between basement culture, which I could also just call a low space and a high space. And in the writing that you did about this book and the ways that you were trying to make sense of that, I thought that you made good sense of that and you tried to project it out into like a larger societal conversation in which we seem to have these spaces in which it's very difficult to talk meaningfully, like in nuanced, complex ways, because People seem, especially white people, are afraid of being called racist or not having the right ideas, while at the same time, there's all this other, you know, (laughs) very racist and unapologetically racist talk. And so Frank was, I think Frank was theorizing that. I think he was trying to figure that out with me. Was there anything good about what was going on in the basement culture? And he was talking about how it's, at a minimum, it seemed that there was more freedom to talk Right. But then he pushed that even further and said that freedom actually became a constraint because as he was talking, I think he realized that he couldn't share his confused ideas there either. Like he had to perform a kind of a a more kind of straightforward kind of
1: kind of jovial poker game racism kind of. Yeah.
0: And that had to be so both of these spaces had constraints in them. And It was difficult for him to figure out where he could actually talk through how he felt about different things. He didn't think that there was a space for that.
1: It kind of maps out very nicely to these, just whatever, the culture wars, right? Like the left-wing spaces where there is a premium on not saying the wrong thing, using the wrong word, and you can get really smacked down if you do. And then on the other hand, the sort of right-wing spaces where racist talk or certainly racist innuendo is just incentivized. It's rewarded, right? Tucker Carlson and et cetera, et cetera. One of the things I like so much about this story is him talking about the basement culture and talking about his experience of it gives you this strong sense of, in some sense that maybe fluidity is not the right word, but it's not, it's not fixed, right? So he goes down into the basement, in a sense, not intending to be his most racist self, right? He's multiple things, right? He's what he wants his kids to be, which is less racist than him, right? And and more courageous about speaking out when people say things that are wrong and racist. So he's that in some spaces and he goes down into the basement culture and finds himself becoming a person that he's a little bit, of, that maybe more than that. He's ashamed of that he's uncomfortable with, because that is what is incentivized. If you make the good racist, the good, funny racist joke, you get rewarded. If he said yeah. anything to add complexity to that, I mean, maybe he would get slapped down. But at a minimum, he would just be kind of a weird, awkward response yeah. to it. Right. Yeah. There would be no recognition. It was not a space in which he can explore complicated feelings about this thing. And then there's also this crazy story about his uncle of somebody who is not fixed into just a kind of racist space, but doesn't have a clear core sense of what he believes. He believes a lot of different, believes and feels a lot of different conflicting things and is very responsive to the structure and to the incentives. Right. So in some structures, he will be properly not necessarily anti-racist, but he will not say anything that smacks of any kind of racism or chauvinism. And in another incentive structure, he will be his worst. It'll bring out the worst of him within in terms of kind of racist instincts. And then in other spaces, he's something else. Tell me the story of his uncle and his like kind of weird, drunken fever dreams of of racial harm.
0: I think I called him Norman in the book. His uncle is Uncle Norman. And I have to say, yeah, when I started trying to figure that out with Uncle Norman, it, it there it is pretty startling stuff. When you're in the middle of doing interviews, you sometimes go, whoa, <laughs> what was that? But then you're just on to the next thing. But when you're looking at working with a transcript, you know, where Norman says, um, when he breaks down and Frank claims that he's seen him do this a couple times when he's drunk, that he'll kind of start crying and say he's worried that he might have been the person that assassinated Martin Luther King. So trying to make sense of that, and that Frank, that happened in a longer narration of Frank talking about his relationship to his uncle and his dad, right? And um, so it's part of a longer thing about how Frank was puzzled by the behaviors of his elders, specifically in relationship to indigenous populations nearby where he was growing up and his how his uncle and his father would complain about Indians being able to take fish in ways that they couldn't. But then Frank also just watched them, you know, breaking all the, exactly the, breaking the laws about that. So you get this image of this kid trying to make sense of...
1: Well, and also Norman... Criticizing the indigenous yep. folks and all—they're lazy. They drink too much. And Norman is this Vietnam vet who drinks too much. Uh, yep. Can't really hold down a job. Is a mess.
0: Yeah. Uh, yeah. There's like this confusion, and then this story about what happens when Norman. Um, you said writing about it in his cups, which is not an expression I grew up with. But
1: <laughs> that makes me happy remembering yeah, that, that I wrote that. Yeah.
0: Um, yeah. Yeah. I just I try to make sense of it as a sort of partial penetration by Norman into his identity. I'm not saying he understood this, but him saying this is sort of displaying that there's a way in which his identity as a white person is somehow wrapped up with violence against black people. I had set up that set of stories, that particular set of stories from Frank and about Norman with trying to use Ralph Ellison stuff on scapegoating.
1: I think this is a kind of larger thesis of yours, and I'm not going to be able to call to mind the Ellison stuff, but that if you want to sort of understand white pathologies around race and Black people in particular in America, a good place to start is this fundamental tension between the way that Black people have been horrifically treated and then these core American ideals of equality and fairness. And that just we're all existing in this sort of fundamental, irreconcilable tension and what we fail to do most of the time. And I think you can, I mean, I think it's more maybe pathologies of the right, but probably pathologies of the left and the right when it comes to race. It's a kind of incapacity to process that in a sort of productive way or something like that. We have this deep shame that we can't, and and what do people do with shame? Like if they're lucky, they have a good therapist and they work through it and find good ways to understand where it comes from and how to accept certain things about themselves, how to live with certain unresolvable tensions. But most of the time, what do we do? We suppress it. And then it bubbles up in these weird ways that look like the opposite of what it is. And, and um, yeah, I mean, what's the Ellison scapegoating?
0: You actually named it very well, which is, and this was you know, I hadn't read, I'd read a lot of Ellison before, but I hadn't read Ellison's essays really carefully.
1: Is so this in like this Shadow, Shadow and Act or something like that? Shadow
0: and Act and yeah, Going yeah. to the Territories and Other Collection. Yeah. And it occurred over time because it was really hard for me to figure out what he was saying. So I'll just say that his essays are very condensed and they're sort of for me like reading John Dewey's work where you, he doesn't use big words, right? And so you think that you're understanding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then by the end of the sentence, you're going like, what in the hell? So it was startling for me to figure out that Ellison was saying something like what you just said, that he thinks white people believe in or desire equality, and then but they know that our society is dramatically violent and unequal. And so then the question is, what do white people do about that, right? Now, as an educator, right, as somebody that hopes that we could figure out ways to do things better you'd hope that the response would be, well, then I need to work to change my society so it better lines up with, you know, with what we want, right? Ellison says, unfortunately, that isn't what most white people do. What most white p- people do is they respond to that contradiction, that conflict by scapegoating people of color. And what he means by that is that we grab onto, for a second, a sense that they're lesser than to ease our our guilt about not living in the society that we want. And it provides like a temporary relief. So what was really interesting to me was when I realized that it's a temporary relief. Like just for a second, you can say, well, black people don't deserve to participate in democracy, right? That's right. Because of these stereotypes. But it doesn't work. Like right. it doesn't, or it doesn't work forever. It, you, it has to keep being re- renewed. And that was this amazing... Answer to me about how in the hell are we to understand the repetition of these stereotypes over time, just their pervasiveness, their endurance? how do we make sense of that when everybody is everybody is saying that 's incorrect information like how do we then why do they keep getting repeated and for me, Ellison really helps with that. And he locates it in that contradiction or tension, that conflict between what America is supposed to be and what it is.
1: It reminds me of that line, I forget whose it is, that the Germans will never forgive the Jews for the Holocaust or something like that. That's one of the things we do when we feel shame or guilt individually or collectively for a way that we've treated other people or other populations is we blame them for it. It doesn't exist at that explicit a level, right? Because if it existed explicitly in that way, it wouldn't make any sense and we wouldn't buy it. Right. But it operates right. through these other mechanisms.
0: And that was what was startling about Norman's story then is because at that moment, he's mm-hmm. feeling guilt for that. He's crying about the possibility that his identity depends on violence and killing the black people. It still remains startling to me. I still, you know...
1: I mean, I think what, and you can correct me if this is wrong, I think what you're also saying in the in the Macintosh piece is that the confession is also a kind of inadequate quick fix in a way. It provides a kind of momentary release, but then it too needs to be renewed and renewed and renewed because the fundamental contradiction. Yep. And obviously that points to what do we do, right? So what do you do? I talked about the kind of like, I think there is a sort of internal psychological work Yep. that one can do just in a sort of standard therapeutic way, right? To understand what are these sort of tensions that you're processing in unhealthy ways and try and bring some of them to the surface and you might find better ways to process them. But and I think what I hear you saying is also, look, one of the ways to address the psychological tension is actually to do effective things to reduce the amount of, to reduce the contradiction, yeah. to reduce the yeah. disparity in treatment and address the sort of historical wrong. Not an easy thing to know what that would be, right. to go back right. to the Macintosh. Thing Part of the reason why we end up in all of these sort of dysfunctional outlets that kind of offer a quick fix in a way is that when you actually want to go out there and do something about it in a constructive way, it is really not obvious always what to do.
0: I'm really glad you took it back to the Macintosh piece because another value of the Reverend Tandeika's work is she would say that we often dramatically misunderstand what these confessions are. So she tells stories about people starting to cry when they're telling a story about how they acted in a certain way. And then they say, so I know I'm racist, you know, and she says, actually, those stories are not about racism. They're stories about when white people didn't live up to their own, their own morals, you know, and that these white people are actually, what they're grieving is their, when they didn't live up to their own Mm. values. And so that would be another way to say one of the problems with the white privilege stuff is it, it just doesn't give us ways even to understand what's being said in a confession, right? It doesn't, it doesn't help us read it. And it doesn't help us read it in a way that would then help us work with that person, right? Going to the, The difficulty of knowing what to do. Lawrence Blum has a nice essay. He calls it a minor critique of the white privilege stuff. But this is one of the things that he was worried about was that white privilege really does seem to focus on lessening our white privilege, like whatever the hell that would mean. It certainly doesn't mean much individually. And he just said, we have to have a broader, more robust sense of what white people could do. And we need to talk about that. What could they actually do? some of the people in the Midwest Critical Whiteness Collective, as they've gone on to be scholars, that's very much what they've been exploring. What would an anti-racist pedagogy actually look like if we were not beholden to starting everything with Macintosh? Shannon McManaman and Zach Casey have a book called Building Pedagogues, which is a story of two years of work with, I think, eight white teachers. And Um, First exploring sort of the historical and structural aspects of racism, then moving into taking up directly what could we do in our schools to actually change things. And the work leads to all kinds of problems because as teachers, white teachers start to understand how enormous the problem is it means that whatever they do is inadequate, right? So that we have to figure out how do we live in a situation where what we can do is inadequate at every moment, right? But they, they taught themselves things. Like they, one teacher examined her gradebook and realized that students of color were being kept out of desirable classes, desirable science classes, because of the weight that she gave different things. And what she found was that she had evidence that white students and students of color actually were learning at the same rate. Um, like the, Their performances showed that they understood things, but the way she weighted homework meant that the students of color, who sometimes didn't turn in their homework, even though they displayed that they learned, right, they were being kept out of desirable high-track science classes. So she changed, she changed the weight, and all of a sudden... All of a sudden, these classes that had been all white before now had students of color. They explore all sorts of concrete things like that. And then the other two I'll mention is just Sam Tanner and Aaron Miller. Sam did a wonderful year-long project with high schoolers where he had a group, I can't remember what it was, 30 students maybe? Across the entire year, they did a project. The first part was participatory action research, where these high school students did research on whiteness in their community, The second part was writing a script, a full script, kind of drawing on the findings of that. The third part was actually doing the play as the official spring play of the high school that year. Beautiful work and what you'd expect happened, happened. Sam and individual students were named by conservative radio hosts locally and nationally as traitors. To America, as I think Sam was called a baggy, baggy Jewish homosexual or something. Just but the cool thing, the cool thing about the story, I'll just say, is Sam had worked so carefully to let the administration and the parents, and these are like almost all white parents, know what they were doing this entire year, that when that trouble came, the community stood with Sam and stood with the students, which is pretty remarkable. That is,
1: yeah, that's an important lesson on like organizing or something like that, right? I have a, maybe it's a fantasy, maybe not, but I, you know, when I was talking earlier about this kind of implicit or explicit premise that we can't really go at the problem unless we start at these sort of like root cause analyses and kind of agree on them. And I think that's actually something I personally don't agree with, but I would love if there were also a menu of things to do for the Franks of the world, right? For the people who don't live in communities in which a real, like, full-on left-wing project that buys into those sort of concepts is ever going to occur, right? But is somebody who wants to make things better, but needs to do it in, with a language and in a context where they're just never going to accept some of those premises, right? Particularly now with everything as polarized as it is, and you get into language like white privilege and white supremacy or something like that. But maybe to go back to Frank or to go back to John, right? And how he was able to access some of these things. Does it have to start with these sort of root cause analyses of whiteness or white supremacy? Or can it start from just like that recognition that as a country we have failed and continue to fail to live up to our core liberal ideas of equality and fairness and justice and things like that.
0: One of the things that I'm committed to and that the Midwest Critical Whiteness Collective was committed to was that those would be multiple and that we wanted to figure out how to respect different sorts of analyses that would identify maybe dramatically different root causes. We kind of have to keep working. My work is grounded in kind of leftist writers and thinkers, right? So sometimes... We have to be careful both, I guess, who the right is and who the left is. I'm against people who make believe they're on the left, but then are willing to really go for it or that are just performing something. That's the first thing I'll say. The second thing I'll say is one of the benefits of Ellison for me was um, the assertion by him. I think of something like you just said was that we might be able to count on in many white people a some sort of desire to live in a society characterized by equality. The problem is that desire, right, is in conflict with or is challenged in all sorts of ways, right, that means then that we're not living that out, you know, that that, that desire isn't the one that wins. But it's an important beginning assumption that we often may be working with and addressing and trying to figure out things with people who do have that desire. And that's a yeah. that's a dramatically different starting point than like a white privilege standpoint, which very quickly gets you into people defend their white privilege because they like their white privilege. Why would they ever give that up, right? This the story like that Du Bois told, that Tendeika told, is one that says white people are profoundly damaged by the society being the way it is. That damage causes them to do damage to themselves, to other white people, and horrific violence to people yeah. of color. That's why like people like James Baldwin would always say that this is a project of white people saving themselves. I do want to hold out that we should at least start these conversations with the idea that at a minimum, white people have a civil war inside of them. But yeah. part of that is that they desire something better. Now, that's not That's not going to always be the case. There are real assholes in the world. Right. There are real people who believe in their superiority, but I, it's not most of the people. Well, and we
1: don't need everybody, right? We need, I don't know, 55% or 60%. Or, I mean, to, <laughs> to make meaningful substantive change, maybe, I don't know what it is. It's almost like the filibuster yep. or something like that. You need yep. 66.7%. You, you don't need the 5% who are just so deep in their own pathology and resentment that they're just unreachable. Yep. Okay, so like last question. So I say usually as if I've done a hundred podcasts, I've done all of like five, right? Usually at the end of my podcast, <laughs> uh, I ask people to put on their sort of prediction lenses and oh, no. and predict where we will, we will be in five or 10 years. And that's a weird question to ask about you because we actually haven't been talking much. I mean, the funny thing about our conversation is we're talking all about this stuff that like is so much is so big in our society right now, right? Like you were doing all this stuff before it was hip. You were doing this stuff in this this kind of trough, you know, and, and then I think when I connected with you, it was like six or seven years ago or something like that when it was post Trayvon Martin, but it was pre-George Floyd, so it, was, it had come back up and it was a certain level of intensity and then it went kind of spiked enormously, right? It has been a thing that has been at the center of our society's attention in a way that it is periodically but then it kind of fades away, right? And so we've seen a lot of involutions. We've seen the rise of Robin DiAngelo and Ibram Ibram X. Kendi, right? We've probably seen, I don't know. I mean, I assume McIntosh is still being assigned, but I bet she has been diminished in influence because, A, because of the rise of new people, and I think there's also become a much greater emphasis on assigning writers of color, and so maybe the fact that she's white has diminished her influence. And it's all moving so fast, right? So now... We're in a moment where there's coalesced a sort of coherent backlash of, I guess I would say, in the negative way, and then maybe in the positive way, critique of some of the ways in which the the woke orthodoxy, it's all moving so fast. I don't know where we're going. And then we had this moment with Black Lives Matter when it seemed like anything was possible. And now it seems like that is substantially
0: evaporated. I don't know. To the extent that you can see around the corner at all. Yeah, I guess I have to say, I don't think I'm very good at that. Rutledge recently asked me, they said they wanted to do a second edition of White Folks, which is really nice. And so these sorts of questions come up. And I realized, I think if the book is good at anything, it's actually good at identifying the stuff that doesn't change, unfortunately. Like, a version of deep structures of psych, the psyche and society, which I guess is a fairly pessimistic thing, right? I absolutely believe we're in a time of backlash, right? That there was this expansion around the murder of George Floyd here in Minneapolis, and there was much more willingness by white people to try to learn things. I was skeptical that that was going to stick for very long, you know, that desire sort of exhausted itself. But then there's also been organized backlash with all the anti-CRT, the anti-ethnic studies, Maybe the way I would just say it is I think about this as the situation is hopeless and we have no choice but to other than to act as if we can try to make it better. My action and my teaching and my writing isn't based on the idea that it, it would lead to things getting better.
1: But then Lear, like- a favorite of mine, talks about radical hope, that we move forward with hope, but without any particular strong notion of what the thing on the other side of the hopelessness that you feel futility would be.
0: Yeah. Audrey and I have long conversations about this because the notion of hope is very important to her. Yeah. And it isn't to me. I don't know why it isn't. When I was young and I think the movie Gandhi came out, Gandhi said this like wild thing. At some point he says, you shouldn't worry about consequences Mm. because you wouldn't do anything. That's right. If you would only do the things that would succeed that you have to somehow like figure out the right way to live and not like, and not only do the things that you think will succeed. So I guess I, I form myself in some ways around that idea. That I also just try to tell students and activists and people that I'm with that I do it also just because it's a better way to live. I get to be with and talk to much more interesting people, much funnier people, people that seem to understand the world in a deep way, like whose kindness isn't based in fooling themselves about the way things are. I would say I just do it because it's a better way to live and it's actually more interesting and it's more fun, which is kind of a silly thing to say or feel like, but it is, Yeah, that's the fact.
1: Well, that's a good place to end. Well, this has been fun. <laughs> And interesting, Tim. It has (laughs) been.
0: It was a pleasure talking with you. I really appreciate this invitation, too. Thank you, Dan. Thanks, Tim. This was very much fun, but it's also just your kind of continued desire to talk with me about this work has been wonderful for me.
1: This is what keeps me going.
0: (laughs) All right. Take care. All
1: right. See you. This was an episode of Eminent Americans, the podcast. If you liked the podcast, subscribe to it uh, and subscribe to the newsletter of the same name, Eminent Americans, the newsletter. Recommend it to your friends. Rate it on the platform on which you listen to it. Beam good vibes about it out into the universe. Thank you to my producer, Nick Worthen, and thank you to you, my listeners. This is a labor of love for me, and I do genuinely appreciate your attention, particularly if you've gotten all the way here to the end of all things. Feel free to email me with questions, thoughts, observations, even diatribes at djops at gmail.com. That's D as in Daniel, J as in James, ops as in ops or Oppenheimer at gmail.com. Have a great day.